0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Breathe Easy podcast brought to you by the Thoracic Oncology Assembly. This is Ismini Kuruni, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, I practice adult pulmonary and critical care medicine at Metro Health Medical Center and serve as the Director of Thoracic Diagnostics. Today we are joined by our expert pathologist, Dr. Caroline Abramovich. Assistant Professor of Pathology at Case Western Reserve University, Director of Surgical Pathology, and also Fellowship Program Director for Surgical Pathology and Cytopathology at MetroHealth. Dr. Abramovich, welcome. Thank
1: you, Dr. Caroni. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you in the audience today. And bridge our worlds between collaboration that occurs with the cytopathologist and the pulmonologist in the setting of the bronchoscopy suite.
0: Although we work within different disciplines, we view our patients through the same lens, with them being at the center of the effort. We are powerless to do anything with the patient unless you give us your reports. And we really give you a tiny amount of tissue and you provide us with many results. How do you do it? Well, I think we do it all together. It really is very much a team effort. I think that's a good way to begin. Uh, let's talk about a routine day in the bronchoscopy suite. Our patient is a 55-year-old woman with a 4-centimeter right upper lobe mass, some epsilateral hilar and possible mediastinal lymphadenopathy. If this is confirmed to be a cancer, we have a clinical stage to b 3 a The goal of the bronchoscopist is a safe procedure and to obtain enough tissue for all the necessary tests which will guarantee a final diagnosis. We map the procedure ahead of time and review these goals with our patients so that we can carry uniform expectations into the room. Now, Dr. Abramovich, how do you prepare for EBAS and what do you need to know?
1: The first thing we do is review the clinical history and imaging findings. We want to know why you are doing the procedure. It's really important that we understand your your, uh, mindset and the background of the patient, and this will guide our evaluation in that it helps us to triage the specimens for any ancillary studies that we may need. It's important to point out that EBIS is often performed for tumor diagnosis and staging. However, there are many, many other causes of lymphadenopathy. For example, lymphoma may cause lymphadenopathy, and if we are suspicious for this process, we may reserve specimen for flow cytometry. However, if infection is suspected, especially in an area like Ohio, we may suggest that you send material for culture and we may Want to ensure that we have enough so that we can possibly do special uh, fungal stains on the cell block. And certainly, if lung cancer is suspected, uh, we want to make sure that we have enough material to do ancillary testing like um, PDL1 or next generation sequencing.
0: Excellent summary, and it really demonstrates how arriving at the diagnosis is a dynamic process. You just provided also an important point here that, especially for practitioners in fungal zones, we live in Ohio. So due to the histoplasma, we are sensitized to obtain tissue culture once granulomas, giant cells, or histiocytes are reported. So it is important to emphasize that anytime these cells are found, material should be sent to the lab in a sterile container with normal saline for cultures. At this point, you have received our slides. What do you do with our first specimens?
1: The first thing we do is we make smears. And at our institution, we make two smears. One is air dried and fixed with a stain called the DiffQuick stain. This is a really good stain for looking at cytoplasmic detail and also for the background material that may be present in the specimen. The other slide, we actually fix with an alcohol fixative and stain with the Papanicolaou stain. Now, this stain is an excellent stain for nuclear detail. It really allows us to um, look at the chromatin pattern and the nucleoli and the nuclear membranes to see certain features that may guide us to whether a cell is um, squamous or may it represent an adenocarcinoma. During the process of ROSE, the rapid on-site evaluation, we primarily use the air-dry quick stain slide. Uh, that's the one that is generated the fastest, and it really uh, guides the bronchoscopists and helps them increase their yield, which translates into a higher likelihood of a successful procedure. The College of American Pathologists recommends that Rose be performed Uh, during the setting of Evis FNA in order to increase the yield of the procedure. And it's been shown with the use of ROSE that the uh, diagnostic success reaches approximately 93%. The benefit to ROSE is really in ensuring uh, an, uh, an adequate specimen and also to guide the pulmonologist as far as whether they need to take additional passes for perhaps culture or uh, flow cytometry, and this really also applies to the pathologist. Uh, We will determine after rows
0: how we want to process the remainder of the specimen that we collected. Now, let's review some of the vocabulary of the pathologist. What is an adequate sample? What is a suspicious sample? And what is a non-diagnostic? Well, usually in the setting of EBIS, uh,
1: we are sampling lymph nodes uh, primarily, and So what is an adequate lymph node sample? We wanna be able to tell you uh, with accuracy that you are in your target. And most there there are varying criteria. One of the more common ones is uh, related to the number of lymphocytes seen. At our institution, we use a number of um, 200 lymphocytes. This is generally considered to be an adequate lymph node uh, sample. Um, The other feature that we may see Uh, in lieu of uh, numerous lymphocytes, is the presence of pigment-laden macrophages. So if we see either one of these two uh, criteria, we will call the the PATHs adequate. Now, um, suspicious um, and uh, atypical may be a little bit more of a frustrating call for the uh, pathologist. Uh, Suspicious really means that we see cells that we think are malignant, um, but maybe they are not present in sufficient quantities for us to make a definitive call. If we are even less sure of a diagnosis of malignancy, we may back off and soften that to um, an atypical diagnosis. But either one of these really has to do with the confidence level of the pathologist as to how sure we are and that we're dealing with a malignant process. Non-diagnostic is unfortunately... Uh, the reality, sometimes this happens and it really means that we don't see enough lymphocytes to really assure you that you are in a lymph node and we don't see any diagnostic malignant cells or granulomas or anything that we can, that we can call.
0: What do you see when you determine that the lymph node is reactive? Well, a reactive lymph node has numerous
1: germinal centers and a polymorphous population of lymphocytes. And in cytology, what this translates into is the presence of a spectrum of uh, maturation of lymphocytes from large centroblastic type cells all the way down to small mature lymphocytes. So we look for a, a polymorphous population. Tingible body macrophages are the other normal component of a germinal center, a reactive germinal center in a lymph node. And we look for the presence of these cells as well. And tingible body macrophages are different than anthracotic pigment-laden macrophages. Tingible body macrophages contain little bits of nuclear debris and cytoplasmic debris because they are phagocytes and they are eating up cells that have uh, died during cell turnover, high cell turnover. So the presence of these cells is also an indication of a reactive lymph node.
0: The feedback of necrotic tissue or the atypical cell you just mentioned previously is quite disheartening for the bronchoscopist. Can you decodify what the atypical cell means?
1: Yes. Atypical is really a difficult um, diagnosis for you and for us because it is unsatisfying. We don't know necessarily what to do. The best way to proceed is probably to get more material. Often when we make a call of atypical, it's because we see cells that are maybe enlarged or they are arranged in an unusual way, but perhaps there's very few of them, or perhaps there are crush artifacts or air drying artifacts that preclude a definitive diagnosis. So if we aren't sure, we
0: always pull back and uh, make a call of atypical. Excellent. Cell blocks are made routinely in addition to slides. What is the cell block and what are its advantages over conventional cytology?
1: Yes, cell blocks really sometimes actually save the day. So we may have an atypical diagnosis actually on the smears and we will be very happily surprised when we receive the cell block. We may see diagnostic material there. Cell blocks are really a way to create a a surgical specimen out of a cytologic specimen. What we do is we create a pellet by spinning down the material that is collected by you in the collection medium, what you rinse your needle into. We spin it down, we make a pellet, and then we combine that with a coagulating agent. There are many of these on the market. We use albumin. It's very readily available. Once we create this uh, pellet, we embed it, as a, as a surgical specimen. It is sectioned in histology and uh, stained with hematoxylin and eosin, just like a surgical biopsy. But what we can do with this is we can do immunostains on this material, um, including PDL1. And we can also send it for ancillary studies, including next generation sequencing or fish to do uh, molecular profiling of um, adenocarcinomas of the lung. So really, the cell block sometimes allows us to see architecture that we can't see cytologically, and it's really like a
0: mini-core biopsy. Well put, a mini-core biopsy. Everyone will remember this, and thank you for uh, saying it. We rinse our needles with different liquid media, HUNX, cytolite, RPMI, can you please discuss their differences?
1: Yes, there are various media available. Cytolite is actually a well-known alcohol-based cell fixative. It's used to preserve the best cellular detail, best nuclear detail, and it will preserve the cells the longest. However, uh, RPMI or HANKS media is um, not a true fixative fixative. It's a cell preservation medium. It's a phosphate uh, buffered solution that contains glucose and the cells will be preserved for a shorter period of time. It's best to use the cells in however way you you mean to use them uh, within a twenty four hour period of pos- if possible. But the benefit to Hanks or RPMI is that it's very versatile. We can do flow cytometry on the cells that are collected into Hanks, or we can make a cell block and uh, create our, our mini core biopsies so that we can do our IHC and ancillary studies. So I really prefer that you collect your samples in Hanks. It allows us a lot more flexibility in our ancillary testing, uh, depending on what we may see you know, on the
0: Rose uh, diagnosis. Thank you for clarifying this. Um, How do you think about the limitations of cytology?
1: Well, cytology is really excellent. And EBIS is is great at at diagnosing tumors and staging tumors all in one procedure. However, there are certain limitations. Uh, One would be in the diagnosis of of a lung cancer, an unusual lung cancer, like large cell carcinoma, which by definition is a null phenotype carcinoma. There can be no... Morphologic or immunophenotypic evidence of squamous uh, differentiation or glandular differentiation for an adenocarcinoma. And in order to determine that, whether there is truly no differentiation, we really need to look at the whole tumor. So, cytology obviously is not the best way to make this diagnosis. The other situation where cytology has its limits is really in the diagnosis of lymphomas. We can we can get you to the point where, yes, we think this is a lymphoma, but lymphoma diagnosis is really complicated and requires a lot of immunohistochemical workup and ancillary studies, which we cannot adequately do on cytology specimens. So um, those are two situations in which I think cytology probably it gets you to a certain point but then it reaches its limits
0: what about uh, the granulomas when do you suspect granulomas are associated with a neoplastic process
1: well that's true granulomas can be associated with some tumors and in particular hodgkin lymphoma is well known to be associated with granuloma formation so it's always important to look at the background of any smear that you're looking at reed sternberg cells are very large distinctive cells so If you see granulomas in a smear, it's probably a good idea to, you know, look at the rest of the smear and make sure you're not missing anything uh, in the background. The other tumor that may be associated with granuloma formation is germ cell tumors, especially seminomas. And these can occur in the anterior mediastinum uh, and may come into play. So it's important in that situation to look for the large s- cells of seminoma to help you make that diagnosis. So that's that's a really good point. Granulomas don't always mean infection and they don't always mean sarcoidosis. It's important to exclude uh, any other sort of
0: neoplastic process that may be going on. Excellent. Um, I think it is time to talk about immunohistochemistry in the subclassification of uh, the lung cancer. What is the information you obtain with this tool? So when we see a non-small cell
1: carcinoma, oftentimes the morphology only gets us so far. Uh, Non-keratinizing squamous carcinomas can look very similar to solid adenocarcinomas. And IHC is a very uh, important tool that the pathologist uses when they are evaluating the type of tumor involved. So squamous cell carcinoma is typically stained with an antibody called P40. The other antibody that we often use is cytokeratin 5-6. Those two together, if they are positive, are very excellent evidence of squamous differentiation. Primary lung adenocarcinomas typically stain with an antibody called TTF1, as well as an antibody called Napsin. This isn't 100%. There's probably about 10 to 15% of lung adenocarcinomas that are, are negative for TTF and Napsin, but for the most part, they are positive. And when they are positive, that makes the pathologist very confident that we're dealing with the primary lung cancer. For small cell carcinoma um, or any neuroendocrine carcinoma, even large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma, we typically use a panel of three IHC markers to Um, identify the presence of neuroendocrine differentiation. And these include synaptophysin. That's the most common one. It's very uh, sensitive for the identification of neuroendocrine differentiation. The other one is chromogranin. And chromogranin is less sensitive, but very specific. So, we use these two in conjunction to get the sensitivity and specificity for neuroendocrine tumors. There's a newer marker that we use now called INSM1. And the benefit to this marker is that it's a very crisp, easily uh, interpreted nuclear marker. And pathologists just love nuclear markers because they're very, they're better, they're easier to interpret than some of the other ones. And We always do a panel, so we typically do synaptophysin chromogranin
0: and INSM-1 together. Thank you for summarizing this. Uh, These are all important uh, information. Um, When should the KI-67 proliferation marker be used in diagnosis?
1: The main established role of KI-67 in lung carcinomas is to help distinguish carcinoid tumors from high-grade neuroendocrine uh, neoplasms. Such as small cell carcinoma or large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma. The main value is especially important in small or crushed biopsies. KI 67 can help the pathologist determine that they are dealing with a very highly proliferative carcinoma, and perhaps this is a neuroendocrine carcinoma and not just a Carcinoid or atypical carcinoid tumor. The role of Ki sixty seven in separating typical from atypical carcinoids is not entirely established. It has been tossed around as uh, possibly being incorporated into the diagnostic criteria, but has not been entirely embraced in that in that manner. Usually, pathologists differentiate typical and atypical carcinoids using mitotic counts. Uh, So we actually count mitoses within the tumors, and we look for the presence of necrosis. So those two features are what really help us make that distinction. This is not really easily done in cytologic preparations, as you can imagine. Um, So overall, KI-67 has a rather limited role in cytologic evaluations. Uh, Morphology is usually the
0: most helpful uh, feature. Excellent. Please tell me a little bit more about how you differentiate between uh, uh, primary lung cancers that may be concurrent and other metastatic adenocarcinomas to the lung. Well, again, yeah, uh,
1: immunohistochemical evaluation is really of paramount importance in that uh, distinction. There are a number of markers that we can use to help us determine the primary site of origin of adenocarcinomas. I already spoke about TTF1 and Napsin. Those are important markers of primary lung uh, adenocarcinomas. For um, gynecologic primaries, we have other um, site-specific markers, namely PAX-8, that may help us determine the site of origin from the malarian tract. Uh, Breast cancer is certainly Something that comes up very uh, frequently in our practice, and there are markers to help us determine that a tumor is a a primary breast uh, carcinoma. So, yes, there are many site specific markers that we have in our toolbox that we may pull out and apply to any um, particular tumor that we're working up. I do think it's important to mention, however, that squamous cell carcinoma is a little bit different. We have do not have any site-specific markers for squamous carcinomas that arise elsewhere uh, in the body besides the lung. And often this comes up in the setting of patients with head and neck cancers in particular. Our ENT surgeons often ask us, can we we do a P16 to determine if the squamous cancer is primary to the head and neck or is it a primary lung cancer? And the answer is no, Uh, P16 does not differentiate the site of origin p16 can yes it's often positive in head and neck cancers but it's often positive in primary squamous cancers of the lung as well so ihc is really a very useful bag of tricks that we have but morphology is king and morphology always um you know, takes precedence over IHC.
0: Thank you, and you provided an example that is uh, happening pretty frequently in the tumor board, the SCOMOS cell uh, battles. So in a nutshell, uh, if I had to summarize the things you uh, told me, the morphologic examination of the slides serves as the foundation of your diagnosis, and then the immunohistochemistry is performed on either cell block or on the slides, and it's performed whenever the morphological appearance does not really result in a conclusive diagnosis. Is this correct? Yes, that's true. Perfect. There are times when the immunohistochemistry reports are delayed, and I notice it happens when uh, I have a challenging case, when I was struggling also to get the tissue. Why is that? Well, I
1: guess it's important to keep in mind that if it was challenging for you, it's probably pretty challenging for your cytopathologist as well. Um, Perhaps there was very little cells uh, available, Perhaps they are trying to preserve tissue and perform IHC in a sequential manner, not to exhaust any cellular material. And every time a pathologist orders an IHC, there's usually a 24-hour turnaround time. So what will happen typically is I will look at a slide and I will think, hmm, I think I want a TTF and a P40 on this Uh, cell block and I will order them. 24 hours later, I will receive the slide and I will look at it. And if I'm still not sure of the diagnosis, maybe I decide I want to add in a neuroendocrine marker, that'll be another 24 hours. But it's really a prudent practice to operate this way in a, in a stepwise fashion. It's more cost-effective so that we don't order a number of unnecessary IHC, and it also helps us to preserve the, the precious little tissue that we are often working with.
0: Really good to know. So I have also noticed it happens with the last impulse of the day. This is the extra day. Should we bring the uh, the specimen to the lab as soon as possible?
1: Yes, I think the if you have a, a patient that you're really uh, wanting to get to a diagnosis quickly, put them first uh, on your your case list for the day, because it's just real world pathology. It takes time to um, process the specimens that you are sending us in particular, the preparation of a cell block. As I mentioned earlier, a cell block is very much like a mini core biopsy. So we need to process that just like we would a tissue biopsy. And that takes overnight processing. If you miss the, the cytotech for the day, uh, if it's a you know Evis procedure that happens late in the day, and the specimen isn't created, a, a cell block isn't created by the end of the day, and it doesn't make it onto the processor that night, uh, we'll have to wait another day. Time
0: is of essence for sure, um, but it's real world, so. Uh, how do you preserve tissue for other future testing like pdl one and the other molecular testing?
1: We have tissue protocols in place where we will cut unstained slides up front from the cell block. And the reason behind this is that every time a histotechnologist has to face into a block when they are cutting a slide, they lose tissue. So we want to minimize the number of times they have to go back to the block, pull it and start facing into the the block again. So what we do is we uh, have them cut, for example, 10 unstained slides up front. And that way the tissue is on the slide and the pathologist may choose to use as many slides as they need for IHC in order to make the diagnosis and then preserve specimen for ancillary testing.
0: How many tumor cells do you need for a next generation sequencing?
1: Well, it probably depends on um, what platforms you're using and what your reference lab is. But for us in general, uh, approximately 200 tumor cells are needed. And more importantly is the, the tumor cell proportion that's on the slide. In general, 20 to 30% tumor cell nuclei is ideal for this sort of testing. How many passes
0: do you do to obtain an adequate specimen? Uh, This is a very good question. Uh, We sent two to three slides from each lymph node pass for adequacy and to obtain your initial impression. And quite frankly, this is what our patients um, wait to hear after we are done with the procedure. What was it? Do I have cancer or no? Uh, And then we do make sure to get a minimum of four additional dedicated passes from each diagnostic station to assure that we have enough tissue for the ancillary and the molecular studies. Now, these passes should yield some visible material into the solution. If we are not visually satisfied by the particles we see floating and we have, of course, no reasons to terminate the station, we will continue for more. We can never tell in real time if we met the cellular goal, and we hope that these additional passes will minimize the need for a biopsy. Now, we follow the recommendations of a multisocietal guideline that we that was published last year by the College of American Pathologists, specifically looking at the collection and handling of full thoracic uh, biopsy specimens. I will be attaching this reference, um, as well as some others, at the end for the listeners, because these are must-read. Can you comment on the turnaround time for the PDL1 and molecular testing? Yes, PDL1
1: is an immunohistochemical stain. So the turnaround time for a PDL result is fairly quick. It's within 24 hours, just like any other IHC result. Molecular testing, however, takes quite a bit longer, and it depends on your reference laboratory. It can take up to two weeks
0: for a turnaround time. Are there any technical factors that affect PDL1 staining results?
1: Well, PDL1 is a little bit tricky to interpret in cytologic specimens. It's easier in tissue specimens. Uh, PDL interpretation requires 100 well preserved tumor cells in clusters. We don't want to just uh, be looking at single dispersed tumor cells because that can produce a lot of staining artifacts and make the interpretation very difficult. So we need to have enough cells, we need to have at least 100 tumor cells, and we look for membranous staining uh, of any intensity. So if there's a lot of necrosis and the cells are degenerating, or if they are singly dispersed, those things all preclude uh, an accurate interpretation of PDL, and we will um, not give a result in those situations.
0: There are circumstances that patients present with stage 4 disease and multiple sites of biopsy. There may be malignant effusion, bone meds. What biopsy technique would you recommend from the pathologist's perspective?
1: Well, any of these sites would be suitable for pathologic evaluation. It really depends on the patient's uh, history. What can they tolerate? I think any pathologist that you may ask would say, The best specimen is a really good core biopsy, a tissue specimen from a, uh, for example, a lymph node or a transbronchial biopsy. And the reason is that we can do a lot from that tissue. We can give you both the diagnosis and have enough material left over for all of the ancillary molecular testing that we may need. When we are dealing with some of these other specimens, namely pleural effusions or um, bone metastases, it's not such a sure thing. In particular, with bone metastases, the problem is that we use a decalcification solution for bone biopsies. And this is a very harsh acid that may degrade nucleic acids. So it really renders the specimen Um, unsuitable for a lot of the molecular testing that uh, needs to be performed. So I think overall, if I, if I needed to choose, I would say a tissue core biopsy, but I'm a cytopathologist. So I also um, very much value the specimens obtained through EBIS. They are often very suitable and we can do a lot with those as well.
0: Fantastic. You know, um, it's exactly what you said. what can they tolerate? And the other part is how soon can we make it happen for them? This is also sometimes a critical point for the decisions. Absolutely. I reached my last question. Uh, we practice in an era of personalized lung cancer care and the medical costs continue to escalate. Is it cost effective to diagnose lung cancer via cytology? Most definitely. EBIS is a less uh, invasive procedure than
1: um, a tissue biopsy, an open lung biopsy for sure, and there's less time involved under anesthesia. In pathology, we have uh, less processing and less tech time for cytologic specimens. So it's a very suitable and actually very powerful discipline and and practice to do cytologic evaluation for these, these patients.
0: Before we close, do you have any final thoughts or any words of advice for our listeners?
1: I would advise our listeners to really embrace a cellular mindset in the bronchoscopy suite. I think it will serve everyone well and learn, learn to uh, trust your cytopathologist. I think uh, collaborating and developing a good relationship with your cytopathologist is really critical.
0: Dr. Abramovich, I appreciate the time you took to talk to us about this. Uh, Thank you for your insights and the incredible summary of what you do for the patient care team. I would also like to thank our listeners for uh, taking the time to join us. Have a good day. Thank you. You as well.